That's where we'll be starting. And if you've noticed, you've probably taken notice that there's a couple of cars, more cars up on top of the hill. Um, we actually, um, due to some unforeseen things, have not been able to get our parking lot in the works. So it's supposed to start around the 28th. And of course, that's not going to make our, our hoped deadline. We were praying towards for having more parking for Christmas Eve. But uh, I'm thinking what I'm going to do is I'm going to move a bunch of those random blocks and sticks and stuff up there and then have the guys with trucks that are adventurous park up there on Christmas Eve and then we'll have plenty of parking for anybody that wants to park down in the parking lot or if you got family that's coming uh, it'll be an opportunity for them to have some closer parking so um, that said God uh, we make plans and, and God directs our steps and sometimes it means he says wait and so here we are we're waiting so in the meantime, I hope you join us this Thursday, right? Thursday, Christmas Eve, 6.30. We'll be uh, reading the Christmas story. We'll be doing some more Christmas songs. And then uh, we'll take communion together at the end and kind of remember uh, the Advent, which just means the arrival, uh, the coming of our Messiah, the one who would come into the world. And as I was meditating on this the other day, it's, it's interesting to me, um, you know, the, the things that we are told to do by man in order to make sure that we are not being too risky. And yet the gospel says that Jesus, knowing that it would kill him, came into direct contact with sinful humanity, knowing full and well that it would cost him his entire life. Not just a quarantine, not just a sickness, but it would kill him physically. And uh, we are recipients of amazing grace. Um, I don't know about you, but if I was Jesus, I would have social distanced myself from all of me. And, uh, and so I'm thankful that Jesus didn't do that and that his love has the power to raise us from the dead. I don't know about any other year where I've understood that importance of the resurrection more than I have this year. And so if there's one thing I'm thankful for this year in uh, 2020, I'm seeing Jesus more clearly. I'm seeing him 2020. And so that being said, um, you want to come and celebrate and worship our King uh, Thursday at 630. So in your Bibles, Genesis 19, we'll begin this morning. And we're going to look at, just like every Christmas, we're going to look at judgment. That's supposed to be a joke. We're, we're going to look at, at something that, that God warned a people about. He gave his people a, a, a notice ahead of time so they could be praying. And then he said, hey, I'm going to destroy this place. And then he's going to pull the one righteous man out of the city. And then there's all kinds of narrative that come along with that. So in Genesis 19 this morning, we find ourselves at the judgment of God, the forewarned judgment of God. And so if you look at this first slide with me, You'll see that in Genesis chapter 18, um, Abraham, because he has fellowship with God, because he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, he was taken from a family of idol makers and idol worshipers and made a child of God by faith. It's really no different in the Old Testament than it is in the New, except we have Jesus in a very personal form coming to us and, and being our atonement for sin. But in the Old Testament, Abraham has fellowship with God because God atoned for him. And when God, when God shows up, he shows up in the form of three men. 
And when he, when he shows up to Abraham at Abraham's tent, Abraham jumps up, he humbles himself, he greets him, he serves God a meal, he then asks his wife to make bread, he washes God's feet, he, he takes the form of a bondservant, a slave, for this guest that's come to his house. And in the midst of that fellowship, as he's serving God, God meets with him and he reveals things that are going to take place in the future. He reveals his plans to Abraham. Number one, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son who, because you laughed when I said it, we're going to name him Isaac. And because your wife laughed at the thought of having a son in her 90s, you're going to have a son and we're going to name him Isaac, which means laughter. And in the meantime, Abraham is also revealed to him the fact that the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, these, these wicked cities whose uh, occupants are only having thoughts of evil continually. That's their practice. You might call it sin city. And sin city is about to be judged. And so God reveals this plan to Abraham. And Abraham, if you remember from our study two weeks ago in Genesis 18, begins to intercede for the righteous that are in that city. And he even says, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? We want justice for the righteous. And so Abraham is praying, if there's, if there's 50 righteous, will you still destroy the city? And God says, no. What about five less? What about 10 less than that? All the way down, he's bargaining. He's, he's auctioning off, if you will. He's, he's saying, but what about if there's only 10? Surely there's 10 righteous in the city. Will you destroy it for the 10? And what God says is, I will not. And then he departs. The conversation over. So in the meantime, we've studied last week in Psalm 1 about being count- blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but he meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. Who is your counselor? And the counselor of the righteous is the Lord himself. But the counselor of the wicked will lead him to destruction. And so what we see is that God's getting ready to destroy a city and the city of the cities of the plains because they had taken counsel from the wicked so long that there's no longer opportunity for them to repent. And so Abraham intercedes for Lot, who is in Sodom, no longer pointing his tent towards Sodom, no longer dwelling in the plains of Sodom. But now when we find him in Genesis 19, verse 1, he will actually be sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, this is not a gate. Like if you go down to Nellie Lane in Bellevue, you're not going to go and sit at a gate that swings on hinges. This isn't like the door to your house. The, the gate was actually a, a stone structure, probably as big as our church, and you would have to drive in it, make a turn, and then you'd have to turn again to get into the city. And what that did, it was a security system. It was a place where you could come in and everybody that was right-handed would have their guns pointed to the left. And on the right, there would be those that would defend the city if somebody wickedly would come in. So you'd make a left-hand turn and then all the soldiers would be there guarding the gate. They'd be watchmen. And the only way into the city would be through that gate. So Abraham would have to go through this gate 
or uh, excuse me, Lot would have to go through this gate. And these men, these angels are going to enter into the city of Sodom through the gate. And guess who's going to be sitting there? Lot. But it's not just the defense of the city. It's also city hall. It's where judgment is placed. It's where court takes place. And so it, you might consider it the county courthouse. But as they go into the city, what we're going to find is that Lot is now a judge in this city of wickedness. Now, I find that ironic because it seems like they didn't have very good judgment in this city. So in Genesis 19, we see that in chapter 18, the angels had departed for Sodom. They were going to go check things out. The wickedness was so bad that it had risen up to heaven and God sent angels to see what was going on. And then it says that as Abram and the Lord are speaking there, that the Lord departs and goes his own way, and Abraham returned to his home, his place of rest. He had interceded for the city, and then he left it up to the Lord, the judge of all the earth. And so in Genesis 19, verse 1, it says, Now the two angels <clears throat> came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he, interestingly enough, being a judge in the gate of Sodom, bows himself with his face towards the ground. He humbles himself at these guests. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then you may rise early and go on your way. And so they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. We're just going to pitch a tent on the courthouse lawn. and We're going to hang out. But he insisted strongly so that they turned into him and entered his house. And then he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread. And they ate. Interesting. They come into the city, and the first thing they're going to do is they're going to find a place to stay. When they're offered hospitality, they, they say, no, thank you, we'll be all right. And Lot persists to invite them into his house. Why do you think that is? Well, in the Middle East, there's a thing for hospitality. Someone shows up, you give them a place to stay, and then once they're in your place to stay, you will defend them even to the death. That's how hospitable they are. It's a cultural thing. Him bowing low is a Middle Eastern way to greet somebody. But then it says, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. Are you starting to get a picture of maybe why Lot was so insistent upon them not staying outside of his house? And they called to Lot and they said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to, to us that we may know them carnally. Now, there's an argument here for people that are higher critics of the Bible, and they say, well, what's implied here by many conservative Christians is that, he, the, that these men are crying out and saying, hey, let, bring them out here. We didn't greet them at the gate. The problem with that is that the word, let us know them, is the same word that's used uh, earlier in the Bible about a man and a wife and their relationship. And so notice it says the young and the old men surround the house of Lot and they yell into his house, 
bring out the two gentlemen that came into town. They know they're men. There's no confusion there. And then they say, we want to have sex with them. We want to rape them. And I don't mean to be PG-13 or R, but the reality is sodomy is called sodomy because it originated in Sodom. And so the idea is, is they want to take advantage of them brutally. It's not just one or two of them. This is not a peaceful thing. The depravity in Sodom was so wicked such that God's getting ready to rain fire and brimstone on them. And if you think about this, uh, we, we might used to read this and go, oh my goodness, but we live in this. This is happening in our country. Maybe not brutally like that, but it's brash. Nobody's any longer ashamed of homosexuality. It's become normal. They're trying to normalize it even more, and it is in most TV shows. So why do you think that is? Because they're trying to get us used to it. But the reality is God's not okay with it. This is not my opinion. This is what Scripture teaches, that those who forsake the natural affection of the opposite sex and then form marriages and produce children, they will be judged. And so here's the case where judgment's getting ready to happen. But wait, we expect the world to be wicked. At least I hope so. By this point, as we read through Scripture, hopefully you realize that, that man naturally, without the Holy Spirit, is going to be bent upon sin and lust and wickedness, and hatred, and violence. And if you're still surprised by that, you need to read your Bible. It's, it's obvious. It took three chapters, maybe four. The first murder happens within the first five chapters of the Bible. And that was between two brothers. It's only gotten worse since then. But as we uh, continue, what we're going to find is, I expect to see wickedness in the world. But when wickedness happens and, and, it's, and it's prevalent and practiced in the life of someone who claims to know God, then we have some issues. Because without holiness, no one can see the characteristics of the Lord in us. And so as Lot is here in Sodom, he's been impacted by living in Sodom for a long time. His morality compass is all jacked up. It's like he left it laying on a magnet too long, and now a perfect north is no longer a real thing to him. And so He's, he's still got the hospitality. He's still got the humility, but the holiness is not there because if we read here, it says in verse six, so Lot went out to them through the doorway. He shut the door behind him and said, please, my brethren. He's calling these ingrates brethren, but he says, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. And you think, man, he's, he's an upstanding guy. He's He's defending his guest. This is awesome. He's taking responsibility for those who live under his household. But wait, there's more. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. What the heck is going on, Lot? I'd like to throat punch him about 72 times. I, I, can't, I, I have no words. I have no words. But I wonder often if we read about Lot and his willingness 
to give away the purity of his own two daughters and think, are we doing that? And we're just blind to it. Are we bringing men into our home that endanger them? And, and I don't mean physically, but maybe even through the TV. Are we bringing in influences through social media that are actually causing them to be predatorized? Is that, that's probably not a word, but you know what I'm saying. Are we allowing them to go places that are actually risking this without saying it outright? Are, are we, are, what happened to the thing that was on TV at nine or 10 o'clock at night that said, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Many of us do know where our children are, and we feel uneasy about it, but we're afraid to tell them no. And we're putting them in the same danger if we're not careful. Lord, forgive us, but here it's so brash and blatant. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, don't harm my guests. Let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Aren't your daughters and your sons under the shadow of your roof? This is the reason they're under the shadow of your roof, Lot. But see, Lot was not taking care of his kids for a long time before it became this bad. Remember, he moved to the plains of Sodom because of the promise of financial prosperity. He moved there so he could provide food for them, so that they could get a good education and so that they could have it better than than he did. Those are all things that we kind of laud as a society, right? Careful. You might actually be helping them financially or physically, but you might actually be hurting them spiritually and then in the, in the process hurt them physically as well. And so Lot went out to them through the door and did this. And uh, verse 9 says, they said, stand back. And then they said to him, this one came to stay here. They're talking about Lot now. And he keeps acting as a judge. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands, pulled Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. So Lot's response to the visitors is that he brings them into his home. The other locals respond to the visitors as well as they have. Uh, Lot's attempt at Middle Eastern hospitality is broken down in cultural compromise. And Lot's neighbors, we find out what they really think about Lot's like, hey, I'm a judge in the town. I'm a well-respected man. And what we find out is that the town's affected Lot more than Lot's ever had an effect on the town. And, and so with that being said, uh, the angels have heard enough and they shut things down. Verse 11, and they struck the men who were outside at the doorway to the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Even after they were blinded by these angels, they are still gnawing at the door like animals to continue to try to do what they want to do because of their flesh. And so I don't know about you guys, but there are several chapters in the Bible that absolutely creep me out. This one, and then there's one at the end of Judges, where something very similar happens later on down the road in the nation of Israel. And so wickedness is prevalent there. So angelic intervention begins, verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here 
son-in-laws, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out, he spoke to his sons-in-law, and really, what we find out, his, his daughters had never been with men, so in their culture, to be betrothed, or we might call it engaged, meant that they were already uh, married, essentially, even though they hadn't consummated the marriage. But um, So he has sons-in-law, even though they're not actually consummated in marriage yet, he, he said, so it says there that he spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. Interestingly enough, their response is, but, uh, he, he says, get up, get out of this place. The Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. And it makes me wonder if this God talk wasn't necessarily prevalent in his normal everyday life. Hey, the Lord's going to destroy the city. What are you talking about? You've never talked to us about God before. Why all of a sudden the sobriety? Why all of a sudden the, the reality? Why You're being a mood killer. Like we were just out here doing what we normally do, and now you're telling us we got to leave this place? that you've been happy in for all these, what, what do you mean judgment? Who's God? I wonder if there's a question here about the God talk, because the God talk was only a Sunday talk or a, a problem, you know, like when, when the chips are down and everything's, you know, going bad, all of a sudden we start praying and then people around us might be tempted to go, what's this God talk about? You never talk about the Lord unless there's a problem. You never talk about the Lord unless it's Christmas or Easter, or, you know, whatever the thing might be. And so these guys, they, they see what he's saying, and they laugh at the thought of judgment. They're mocking him. So when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, they're, they're still begging him till he's still there. This is an all-night ordeal. The angels are pleading, Lot, judgments getting ready to fall down get out of the target zone you're in ground zero so when the morning dawned and the angels urged lot to hurry saying arise take your wife and your two daughters who are here lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city and while he lingered if you get a chance if you're the type that writes in your bible i would underline the word lingered he he waited he, he continued to remain. He's, he's stuck in a spot. He's uncomfortable with the thought of leaving, and yet he knows that he must. And so he continues to linger, and the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out, and they set him outside the city. This has happened to me before. It's called the Walmart parking lot and toddlers. You know, you hold their hand. We, I don't even say hold my hand anymore. I just say parking lot or street or car. Just something real quick to get their attention so they grab my hand. And they're usually pretty good about it. But when they don't and there's a car coming and you shout the warning, car, and they don't get the bike out of the road or they don't come to you real quick, what do you do? You grab their hand. You don't care. 
You grab them. You rip them out of the danger, right? At this point, you're not worried if their, their shoulder comes out of socket. You'd rather them be alive and maimed than mangled and dead, right? And so that's what God's doing. He's a good father. He's grabbing them by the hands and going, no, 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 go. I'm not talking anymore. I'm pulling you out. It's too much for you. You cannot withstand what's coming. Let's go. And that's the idea of the rapture, by the way. God's going to come. He's going to rip us from this earth. He's going to rapture us. He's going to capture us. He's going to meet us up in the clouds. And he will take us to be with him. And then, Revelation 4, the judgment. There is a time where he will grab us and say, it's time. For, for, for Lot here, this was the time. And yet Lot lingered. Lot lingered. He, he liked bear, being where he was. He, he had already told him, arise, take your wife, take your daughters. And then finally, he took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, the hands of his two daughters, and the Lord, being merciful, brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, he gives them instructions. He's ripped them out, and now he's telling him what to do. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. He's been saved from judgment. So you'd think Lot would be like, awesome, thank you, let's go. Whatever you say, I will do. <clears throat> so verse 13, the place is going to be destroyed. Verse 12, warn those you care about and prepare them to leave. That was the word. He finds out about his sons-in-law and really what they really think about him. The angels say, go quickly, but Lot lingers, and God in his mercy rips him out. So what I want to point out real quickly is that when God gives you a new beginning, and that's what Lot is failing to see right now. Lot, you have a new beginning. And all he can think about is what he has to leave. What's going to be destroyed? By the way, Lot really liked it there. He was so comfortable there that when God said, I'm going to torch it and everybody in it, Lot stayed. That's stupidity. And we might think, I would never do that. But let me tell you that this year, as things have been taken away from us, I'm, I'm realizing I'm more comfortable here than I probably ought to be, that I've placed my hope in things that God's said, you can have those things, but don't be too comfortable because if I take them away, I'm still good. And so when God gives you a new beginning, it has to start with something else ending. Be thankful for closed doors. They often guide us to the right door. And if you won't go through the right door, God will take you through the right door. And he might have to peel your grimy hands off of everything that can't go with you. The old life has to die before the new life can begin. And that's a salvation message as much as it is a practical message. In order for your new life in Christ to begin, you have to say goodbye to the old life. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 26, Jesus told his disciples, <clears throat> if anyone would come after me, in other words, if anybody would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, meaning let him die, 
and follow me. For whoever would save his life or try to keep his life will lose it. But whoever gives up his life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. For what will it profit a man or a woman if they gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Or what, sh- what will a man give in return for his soul? And what we're finding is that many people will give up anything for their soul, anything to save their life. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. That's a really nice way to say died. When we go to a funeral, when we, we have someone in our life that dies, we say they've passed away, and it, it's a softer way to say it. But what it's really saying is that they've, they've ceased to live. They've died. They've stopped breathing. They're dead. So the old things, the, the old life that we had before Christ, or maybe you have right now and you've never laid it down and said, Lord, I, I want to take up the, the righteous life of Christ you're still holding on to what you know. In order for you to become new, you got to lay down that thing. you got to give up. what you're, you're just holding on to a dead bag of bones. Jesus has promised to make you alive in Christ, to make you completely new, to give you a redeemed heart and mind and soul, to, to wash away all the filth and the sin and the things that you're ashamed of from the past and to make you new. That's the best news ever. If you had a crummy, worn out, piece of junk car and someone said, hey, I've got a brand new car from you for you, but you had to give up the one you were sentimental about, how many of you would be like, uh, no, I want to keep this thing. I'd rather keep this and have to fix it every day than take this brand new whatever. Nobody would do that. And yet spiritually, we're unwilling to let go of the junk so we can have the Ferrari or whatever, you know, whatever your car is. Maybe you're not a Ferrari guy. Maybe you're a Bugatti guy. Uh, maybe you would just like to have a two-seater, uh, a Miata or something like that. Uh, maybe you're like me. My favorite car is my Jeep. I don't care. I think if somebody offered me a brand new car at this point, I probably would hold on to my Jeep. Shame on me. But in Christ, God's offered me everlasting life, why would I hold on to death any longer or things that produce death any longer? And so let it die. Verse 18. Then Lot said to them, he's been taken out of the city and, and, and the angels tell him, here's where you need to go. Here's where the safe place is. And Lot says, oh, please no, my lords. I don't want to go to there. It, they've told him to go where? The mountains. Escape to the mountains where you'll be safe. You won't be destroyed there. And Lot said to them, please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But you've given me so much grace and mercy and so far you've led me away from destruction, but I got it from here. <laughs> thank you for getting me out of the path of destruction, but I'll take it from here. But God's so gracious. Uh, 
but cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil will overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. I won't be in a big city anymore, Lord. I'll be in a small one. And that's the name of the city, Zoar, which means small city. It's near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And then my soul shall live. All of a sudden, Lot knows what's best for his spiritual location in life. He's denying God's best, and he's taken a, a slight downgrade in his mind. So he said to him, See, I have favored you. This is the men speaking again concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. So God's best is denied, but God still saves him. And I think it's salvation. Many times we recognize the destruction that God has given us, excuse me, saved us from, and yet we still tend to, as young children, go, I don't really want that. I don't like vegetables, mom and dad. I'd like to eat a corn dog. Well, me too, son, but I want to live a long time, so I'm going to eat some veggies. And so we look at God, who is the creator of the earth, who has provided so great a salvation at the expense of the blood of his son, and we go, thanks for saving me. Got it from here. And we're like, what? Yes, I saved you, but I'm going to have to keep saving you from yourself, and you keep longing for your will instead of mine. It's a dangerous spot to be in. So the angel says, escape to the hills with your life in verse 17. And Lot says, please no, let me escape to the little town and then my soul shall live. But then in verse 21, he continues and said to him, see, I favored you concerning this thing also in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. It seems to me that the city that he's fleeing to was going to be one of the ones that was judged. But because of his presence there, God's not going to judge this city. So he says to Lot, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Now the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Remember, it's morning still. And the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. So he took what Lot knew as a well-watered plain, and he made it a dead place so that nothing would grow. And to this day, if you visit the Dead Sea, this is the region that God judged. It became so full of sulfur and ash that to this day, nothing grows. And it's left there to be a a place of death, a valley of literal death. What's interesting is toward the ends of the, the book of Ezekiel, Mount Zion will split open, and from Mount Zion will flow rivers of living water, and there'll be healing waters. And when they flow through the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan Valley, and they fill up the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea will be in the time of the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Jesus. It will be healed by the water that proceeded from that mountain. And there will, the Dead Sea will then be teeming with fish. God's going to redeem it. 
just an interesting factoid. I think it's kind of neat the way that God brings all things around at the end of things. But being back in Genesis, we see the death of this place, a sea that was turned into the Dead Sea. So he overthrew the cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, which is the one thing he said, don't look back, don't go to the, don't hide in the plains, and she became a pillar of salt. So verse 27 through 29, meanwhile, Abraham, Abraham, uh, verse 27, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. So now we're seeing it from the perspective of Abraham. So my question for you is in chapter 18, as it closed and Abraham gets done interceding for, the, for Lot and for the city, did Abraham think that because he had prayed that the judgment would be held and no longer be pronounced upon the city? I wonder that. Um, did he foresee that God would deliver Lot or did he think that it would stop the judgment altogether because Lot was there? I don't, I don't know. But Abraham sees the aftermath of God's judgment. He sees the, the pillar of smoke coming up as from a furnace. It was like, <clears throat> but notice that the reason that Lot was delivered was the prayers of Abraham. He, he was praying in congruence with God's will. And for every person that is delivered from the destruction of God's judgment, there was an Abraham. For every lot that's delivered, there's an Abraham who was praying. Every single one. If you're here and you've been delivered from destruction, you're in Jesus, somebody prayed for you. It didn't happen on accident. And for you who have been delivered from destruction, who is the lot that God has to pray for for you? Abraham interceded for Lot. And you might look at Lot's actions as we've just read in this chapter. You might think, I'm praying for that guy. That guy's a turd at best. He, I mean, he just is. I despise Lot. And yet what the New Testament says about Lot is that his, his righteous soul was vexed when he lived in Sodom. He was actually conflicted daily by what he saw going on. So though he was righteous, he lived a, a life where everything that was close to him was lost. His own wife. You know, it's one thing if your son-in-laws laugh at you when you say, hey, destruction's coming. Son-in-laws do that, right? In-laws are kind of a weird situation. But his own wife longed for Sodom more than to be delivered and obey a simple command, don't look back. So she looks back and she's judged along with Sodom because of that. She disobeyed the simple command. And yet what we see here is that intercession is something that not only humankind can do, because here we have God remembering Abraham was the reason Lot was delivered, just like God remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. That's what delivers you and I. 
Maybe you're here today and you think, my life resembles a little bit more like Lot probably than I'd like to admit. So I don't know if I can be saved or delivered from judgment. Well, praise the Lord, there's, a, there's an Abraham for us. Abraham was just a type of what Jesus Christ would be because in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24, it says, because Jesus, our high priest, lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely, wholly, those who come to God through him. Because he, not like Abraham who died after he inter interceded for Lot, he, Jesus, always lives to intercede. He's sitting right now at the right hand of the Father, praying for those who will be judged with the world if they're not delivered from destruction. He's praying for you and I. And if you don't believe that, read John chapter 17 in the great high priestly prayer. He prays for his disciples, he prays for himself too, which is kind of a confusing thing in the Trinity. But then he also prays for all who will believe in Jesus because of the testimony of his disciples, the apostles. He prays for past, present, and future followers of Yahweh. I love this. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now praying for you and I, the, the, those that will inherit salvation. And so Abraham getting to be a type of Jesus there. Verse 30, Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains. So after living in Zoar, seeing the destruction, then it says he, he dwells in Zoar and then he leaves and flees to the mountains, which is where he's supposed to go in the first place, and his two daughters were with him. I want to stop there and point out the fact that uh, what, what uh, Proverbs says, and I thought I had it in here. Oh, wait, there it is. I was skipping ahead. Oh, don't read that. Spoiler alert. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. <laughs> Lots safe in Zoar at the word of the Lord, and he's still running. He's still running because he's afraid. He's ashamed. Uh, but what I want to point out from verse 30 through 38 is another heinous story. It says that he fled to the mountain and his two daughters were with him for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. He's gone extreme off the grid. Okay, I'm not doing any cities anymore. Now I'm going to go where there's no power. And I'm going to live off the land. Now the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. And there's no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine to not tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Now there are some that have argued, and by the way, if you're uncomfortable when you read that, me too, um, there are some that would argue that this was a cultural thing. But I would argue that to the teeth because 
If it was a cultural thing, they wouldn't have to get their dad drunk to make him do this. So they got him drunk in an altered state. Uh, by the way, when you give control of your life over to a substance of any kind, you're not in control anymore. It controls you. And you're, you're hindered from making any sober or wise judgment. But here it says that these daughters knew that if they got him drunk, then they could procreate with him for some reason. Uh, and I believe that many of them, I, I believe that they thought that it was the end of the world. They saw the judgment of the city, and that was where their world existed. So everything that they knew was destroyed, and so they, they wanted to find another way. But they had also lived in Sodom just like their mom, just like their, uh, their, their uh, betrothed to be. They had lived in Sodom just like, um, just like Lot. And so perversion became their norm. They didn't know anything else. And so in the midst of that, they're perverted. They're twisted in their minds. They don't know what's right and wrong. And so they, they live in wickedness. And out of this union... Both the daughters of Lot were with, the ch with child by their father, and the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. And if you know anything about the, the history of the Israelites, the Moabites and the Ammonites become the top of the list of the people that procreate and create wickedness in the land until the time that the sons of Abraham and Israel come back from Egypt and their iniquity is full to the brim and they become, because they don't get destroyed by the Israelites when they come into the land, they become a trap and a snare to the Israelites for the rest of their existence in the land as they come back to conquer it. Uh, they become a snare. They Just like, just like uh, Ishmael becomes a snare to Isaac and the descendants of Isaac. So also these, these sons of the flesh will become an irritant for the Israelites for, uh, for years to come. So I wanted to, to make some, some uh, observations. Living in Sin City affects you. It does. Sin has immediate consequences. Uh, notice that Lot, because of sin and dwelling amongst sin, his family didn't respect him at all. They laughed at him. Uh, they also weren't willing to be led by him. That's a consequence of him leading them into the presence of sin. Um, it keeps you in the path of judgment. Notice in verse 16, Lot lingered because he was comfortable in sin. Uh, it makes you dull to sobering warnings, verse 17 and 18. The angels told him over and over again and finally had to rip him out of their circumstances. But sin also has long-term consequences. It leaves you confused. You don't know which is the right way to go. I don't want to go to the, the mountains. I'd rather go to this little city. And then when he goes to the little city, well, I'm not content here either. I need to go to the mountains. I'm thankful, by the way, that Jesus told a parable about two sons. There was one son that his father told him to do this and that. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. And there was another son. He told him to do this and that. And his, his other son said, okay. And then the one son that said, okay, didn't do it. And the one that said, I will not do it, turned around and did it. He repented and he did it. 
So even for Lot, he's a picture of that guy who said, well, I'm not going to go to the mountains. I'm going to go to Zoar. And then later he's like, eh, probably ought to go to the mountains. I don't know. I find a little grace in that. But then uh, sin has long-term consequences. It keeps you from questioning things that are obviously wrong. My daughter starts filling me with alcohol. I'm going to start getting nervous. Like, what does she want? What's she trying to do? Like, what? what? No, first off, I don't drink. And second off, where did you get that? I don't. <laughs> Obviously, she's seven, so it's hilarious. But if she was 20 and she comes into my house and she's got alcohol, we're going to have a, we're gonna have a conversation. Like, what's going on in your life? But uh, anyway, perversion was normal for his daughters. Verse 36, because he had dwelt so long and taken his family to perversion, uh, them doing what they did in the end of this chapter was just a fruit of their fathers allowing sin to be normal, not calling it sin. But then also the end part, sin conceives and produces offspring and, and it traps us and it brings forth death. The more we sin, the more it gets its teeth into us. And the more we feel like we can't stop it, and then next thing you know, it's running our lives. And then we suffer the consequences of that. So how, I live in Sin City. We live in the world. Were we supposed to be separatists? Were we supposed to flee to the hills and never see anybody? Didn't Jesus call us to go and make disciples? Aren't we supposed to be in the world but not of it? All of those things. Uh, be together with people, but be separate. And it comes back to what we learned last week, uh, being counseled by Jesus. How do we be counseled by Jesus? Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to God. It's Deuteronomy 6, folks. Talk about the Lord as you rise up, as you go to bed at night, as you walk along the way, as you're driving to the parents or the in-laws, as you're going to the Walmarts or the Save-A-Lots, as you're, as you're uh, perusing YouTube with your kids, maybe watching fun cat videos. I don't know. We're, we're on this hitch right now where we watch the videos of that guy that does everything aggressively. Many of you have seen this. But then he does every, it's, he's got videos for everything, and, and it's like this wormhole. But, but while we're in the wormhole, we try to redeem it somehow and go, hey, you know, why don't we do everything hurriedly? Because we want to do it right before the Lord and, you know, some, some sort of preachy thing in the middle of it. But all of that said, like when we come across things that are in this world being taught to our children, we have very real conversations. Here I am, it's Christmas time, I'm a pastor what, Lucy's been with us the whole time, whether in the womb or out of the womb. And, and the other day she looked at me and she goes, she goes, hey, here's the deal. Like, uh, you know, I, and we were having this conversation about Santa and, and, and all the ins and outs of that. And, and, and she was like saying some very definitive things. And I realized that she's already, even though she's saturated in the gospel, she, she is confused about the, the true meaning of Christmas. And so she was wanting to make it all about Santa. And I, we kind of take the angle of Santa's a real person. And, and he was never the main idea. He was actually being generous to people because he knew Jesus, you know, and teaching her the history of that. And so we, we kind of brought her back around and go, I, I get it, but Jesus, 
we make much of Jesus. And so uh, counseling one another and learning the truths of Scripture and then bathing each other in the water of the Word is, is how we ought to uh, fight off the evil of the world and, and then not end up in, the, in what happens with Lot is that his family won't follow him or they laugh at him because that wasn't his normal practice. I was sitting there this morning thankful for the grace of God. And this might seem like a small thing, but my son literally doesn't know what day it is ever. Now he's four, I get it. But kids also pick up on routines, right? And I was just thankful that he didn't know it was Sunday. Why do I say that? Because every day's the same at our house. Six o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting in my chair, I'm reading my Bible, and my son gets up, and he's got a big smile on his face, and he just wants to snuggle by the fire. That's Sunday, that's Monday, that's Tuesday. The only day it's not, by the way, is uh, Saturday. We, we sleep in till like 6.30 or 7. You know, like, I can't sleep on Saturday. For whatever reason, I can't sleep in. But even then, it's a slow morning. And my son doesn't say at that point, where are we going? Where am I going today? But on Sunday, he's like, where am I going today? It's church day. Awesome. Let's do it. On Monday, where am I going today? You're going to Mama's. You know, he doesn't know based on what I'm doing what day it is. Because Jesus has become a routine for us. And, and we're always trying to find ways to, to learn of him and be under his counsel. And I want that to become normal so that when other people aren't doing what we do, they're, they're not making fun of them. They're just going, well, that's not what we do. We're about Jesus. And that's not about legalism, by the way. That's just about daily taking each step with Emmanuel, God with us. He came to be with us. And he said, before I leave you, I'm going to the Father. You can't come with me, but I'm going to send you. I'm going to leave you, not as orphans, but I'm going to leave you a helper. I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit. He's not God was with us, by the way. He's God is with us. And that's what we celebrate this time of year. So don't dwell on or love the world or the things in the world. That's what the Apostle John says. But love the word of Christ and let him dwell in you. Let him be your counselor. Don't be like Lot. He's a saved soul in a wasted life. Be a saved soul in a fruitful life for the glory of God. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, this somber warning from Scripture of what it can look like if we're saved and yet uh, counseled by the world and taking our family to the world. And uh, we're not called to be separatists. Lord, we're called to be in the world and yet not of it. And so, Father, I pray that unlike Lot, that we would have an impact on our culture rather than our culture impacting us. And I pray, Father, that as we uh, are seeking to live faithful lives of, among our, our community members and in our families, or for some of us, we won't get to see our families this year. Lord, help us to live patient, endurant, endurant faith before you. Help us to put up, place our hope where Christ is seated in the heavens. And in the meantime, Lord, we just thank you for the week where we get to celebrate Christmas. Thank you for Christmas Eve and what we celebrate your birth. Thank you for being vulnerable for us. Thank you for providing a way of escape. Uh, thank you for being our redeemer, but also the one who lives to intercede for us like Abraham did for Lot. Father, help us to just take advantage of that, to place our hope in that.
and to fully place our trust in you today. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for your ability to deliver the righteous from those who will be judged. Lord, help us to warn those around us, whether they laugh at us, whether they, they say they believe and then they look back, or whether we grab them by the hand and take them with us. Lord, help us to take as many people with us from judgment. In Jesus' name, amen.